Chapter Six, Part Two of A Little Brother to the Bear by William J. Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Chapter Six, Part Two. Kadunk the Fat One. When the summer glowworms came, lightning bugs, the boys called them. We saw another curious and pretty bit of hunting. One night, as we sat on the porch in the soft twilight, I saw the first lightning bug glowing in the grass and went to catch it as a jewel for a lady's hair. As I reached down my hand under a bush, the glow suddenly disappeared, and I put my fingers on Kadunk instead. He, too, had seen the glow and had instantly adopted jacking as his mode of hunting. Later I caught a lightning bug and put it in a tiny bottle, and dropped it in front of Kadunk as he started across the lawn in the late twilight. He saw the glow through the glass and took a shot at it promptly. As with the hairy caterpillar, he shut his eyes as he gulped down the imaginative morsel, and when he opened them again there was another lightning bug glowing in the grass just where the first had been. So he kept the tiny bottle jumping about the lawn at the repeated laps of his tongue, blinking and swallowing between whiles, until the glow-worm, made dizzy perhaps by the topsy-turvy play of his strange cage, folded his wings and hid his little light. Whereupon Kadunk hopped away, thinking no doubt in his own way that while lightning-bugs were unusually thick that night and furnished the prettiest kind of hunting, they were very poor satisfaction to a hungry stomach not to be compared with what he could get by jumping up at the insects that hid on the underside of the leaves on every plant in the garden. It needed no words of mine by this time to convince the good Mrs. James that Kadunk was her friend. Indeed, she paid a small boy ten cents apiece for a half-dozen toads to turn loose about the premises to help Kadunk in his excellent work. And the garden flourished as never before, thanks to the humble little helpers. But Kadunk's virtues were more than utilitarian. He was full of unexpected things that kept us all constantly watching with delight to see what would happen next. As I said, he soon learned to come to the call. But more than that, he was fond of music. If you whistled a little tune softly, he would stay perfectly still until you finished before going off on his night's hunting. Then, if you changed the tune, or whistled discordantly, he would hop away as if he had no further use of you. Sometimes at night a few young people would gather on the porch and sing together, a proceeding which often told Kadunk out from under the doorstep, and which, on one occasion, brought him hopping hurriedly back from the garden, whither he had gone an hour before to hunt his supper. Quiet hymns he seemed to like, for he always kept still as a worshipper, which pleased the Reverend James immensely but ragtime music he detested if one could judge by his actions and by the unmistakable way he had of turning his back upon what did not appeal to him or touch his queer fancy one evening a young girl with a very sweet natural voice was singing by an open window on the porch she was singing for the old folks pleasure that night some old simple melodies that they liked best just within the window the piano was playing a soft accompaniment a stir in the grass attracted my attention and there was kadunk trying in vain to climb up the step i called mrs james attention quietly to the queer guest and then lifted kadunk gently to the piazza 
There he followed along the rail, until he was close beside the singer, where he sat perfectly still, listening intently as long as she sang. Nor was she conscious that night of this least one among her hearers. Two or three times this happened in the course of the summer. The girl's voice seemed to have a fascination for our homely little pet, for at the first sweet notes he would scramble out from his hiding and try to climb the steps. When I lifted him to the porch, he would hop along till close beside the singer, where he would sit, all quietness and appreciation, as long as she sang. Then, one night when he had sat humble and attentive at her feet through two songs, a tenor who studied in New York, and who sometimes gave concerts, was invited to sing. He responded promptly and atrociously with, Oh, holy gee! which was not the name of the thing, but only the Academy boy's version of a once popular love song. Had Kedunk been a German choir leader, he could not have so promptly and perfectly expressed his opinion of the wretched twaddle. It was not the full words, which he could not fortunately understand, nor yet the wretched tingle-tangle music, which was past praying for, but rather the voice itself with its forced and natural quality so often affected by tenors. At the first strident notes, Kadunk grew uneasy. Then he scrambled to the edge of the porch and fell off headlong in his haste to get down and away from the soul-disturbing performance. The sudden flight almost caused a panic and an awful breach of hospitality among the few who were quietly watching things. To cover an irrepressible chuckle, I slipped away after Kadunk, who scrambled clear to the pie-plant patch before he stopped hopping. As I went, I heard the gentle Mrs. James, soul of goodness and hospitality, coughing violently into her handkerchief, as if a rude draught had struck her sensitive throat. But it sounded to me more like a squirrel that I once heard snickering inside of a hollow pumpkin. However, the tenor sang on, and all was well. Kadunk, meanwhile, was engaged in the better task of ridding the garden of noxious bugs, sitting up at times, in a funny way he had, and scratching the place where his ear should be. It was soon after this, when we all loved Kadunk better than ever, that the most astonishing bit of his queer life came to the surface. Unlike the higher orders of animals, Kadunk receives no training whatever from his elders. The lower orders live so simple a life that instinct is enough for them, and so nature, who can be provident at times, as well as wasteful, omits the superfluous bother of teaching them. But many things he did before our eyes for which instinct could never account, and many difficulties arose for which innate knowledge was not sufficient, and then we saw his poor, dull wits at work against the unexpected problems of the universe. As the summer grew hotter and hotter, Kadunk left the doorstep and made for himself a better den. All toads do this in the scorching days, hollow out a retreat under a sod or a root or rotten stump, and drowse there in its cool, damp shade while the sun blisters overhead. Just in front of the doorstep, some broad flagstones extended across the lawn to the sidewalk. The frosts of many winters had forced them apart, some more and some less, and a ribbon of green grass now showed between many pairs of the stones. Where the ribbon was widest, Kadunk found out, in some way, that the thin sod covered a hollow underneath, 
and he worked at this until the sod gave way, and he tumbled into a roomy cavern under one of the flagstones. Here it was always cool, and he abandoned the doorstep forthwith, sleeping through the drowsy August days in the better place that his wits had discovered. Now Kadunk, with good hunting in the garden, and with much artificial feeding at our hands, grew fatter and fatter. At times when he came hopping home in the morning, swelled out enormously with the uncounted insects that he had eaten, he found the space between the flagstones uncomfortably narrow. Other toads have the same difficulty, and, to avoid it, simply scratch the entrance to their dens a little wider. But dig and push as he would, Kadunk could not budge the flagstones. He scratched a longer entrance after his first hard squeezing, but that did no good. The doorway was still uncomfortably narrow, and he often reminded me, going into his house, of a very fat and pompous man trying to squeeze through a turnstile, tugging and pushing and tumbling through with a grunt at last, and turning to eye the invention indignantly. To get out of his den was easy, for during the long day he had digested his dinner and was thin again. But how to get in comfortably in the morning with a full stomach? That was the question. One morning I saw him come out of the garden, and I knew instantly that he had more trouble ahead. He had found some rich nest of bugs that night and had eaten enormously. His fair round body dragged along the grass as he crawled rather than hop to his doorway, and his one desire seemed to be to tumble into his den drowsily and go to sleep. But alas, he could not get in. He had reached the limit at last. First, he put his head and shoulders through, and by pulling at the underside of the flagstones tried to hitch and coax his way in. All in vain, his fat body caught between the obstinate flags and only wedged tighter and tighter. The bulging part without was so much bigger than the part within that he must have given it up at a glance, could he only have seen himself. But he worked away with wonderful patience till he knew it was of no use, when he pushed himself out again and sat looking into his inhospitable doorway, blinking and tasseled and all covered with dust and grass roots. As he sat he kept scratching the place where his ears should be, as if he were thinking. In a moment or two, as if he had solved the problem, he turned around and hitched his hind legs into the hole. He was going in backwards, but carefully, awkwardly, as if he were not used to it. This, however, was worse than the other, for his obstinate belly only wedged the tighter, and with a paw down on either side of him, every push lifted him up instead of pulling him down. He gave up quicker than before, because his head was out now, and he could see better how he was progressing. At last he lay down, as if he had solved the problem, and tried to squirm through his long doorway lengthwise. This was better. He could get either his hind legs or his head and shoulders through. But, like the buckets in the well, when one end was down, the other end was up and still his fat, obstinate body refused to go through with the rest. Still he seemed to be making progress, for every teeter of head and legs worked his uncomfortable dinner into better shape. At the end he wedged himself too tight, 
and there was a harder scramble to get out than there had been to get in. By a desperate push and kick he freed himself at last and sat, all tasseled again, blinking into his doorway, meditating. Suddenly he turned and lowered his hind legs into the hole. He was more careful this time, afraid of being caught. When he had dropped through as far as he could go, he sat very still for some moments, supporting himself with a paw on either side. His jaws opened slowly, and full of wonder at a curious twitching motion he was making, I crept near on hands and knees and looked down into his wide mouth. There was his dinner, all sorts of flies and night bugs coming up little by little and being held in his great mouth as in a basket, while his stomach worked below and sent up supplies to relieve the pressure. Slowly he slipped down as the stones began to lose their hard grip. A squirm, a twist, a comfortable roll of his stomach, a sudden jounce, and the thing was done. Kadunk was resting with a paw on either flagstone, his body safe below, and his mouth, still wide open above, holding his precious contents like an old-fashioned valise that had burst open. Then he swallowed his disturbed dinner down again in big gulps, and with a last scramble disappeared into his cool den. That night he did not come out, but the second night he was busy in the garden as usual. To our deep regret he deserted both the doorstep and the den with its narrow opening under the flagstones. It may be that in his own way he had pondered the problem of what might have become of him had the owl been after him when he had come home that morning. For when I found him again he was safe under the hollow roots of an old apple tree, where the entrance was wide enough to tumble in quickly, however much he had eaten, and there he stayed by day as long as I kept tabs on him. There was but one more interesting trait that I discovered in the last days of the summer, and that was his keenness in finding the best hunting grounds. Just behind his den the old apple tree was a stone wall, under which insects of all kinds were plenty. Kadunk's den was on the east side, so that the sun as it set threw the cool shade of the wall over the place, and brought our pet out earlier than was his wont. In some way, he found out that the west side of the wall caught and held the sun's last rays, and that flies and all sorts of insects would light or crawl on the hot stones to get warm in the late afternoon. He made a tunnel for himself under the wall just behind his den, and would lie close beside a certain gray stone on the west side, his gray coloring hiding him perfectly, picking off the flies as they lit with the quickness and certainty of a lizard. When bugs and insects crawled out of their holes to sun themselves a while on the warm stone, Kadunk, whose eye ranged up and down over his hunting ground, would lie settled comfortably, and would then creep cautiously within range and snap them up with a flash of his tongue that the eye could scarcely follow. In a dozen afternoons, watching him there, I never saw him miss a single shot, while the number of flies and insects he destroyed must have reached up into the hundreds. In the same field, four or five cows were pastured, and on pleasant days they were milked out of doors instead of being driven into the barn. 
Now those who have watched cows at milking time have probably noted how the flies swarm on their legs, clustering thickly above the hoofs, where the switching of a nervous tail cannot disturb them. Kadunk had noted it too, and often during the milking, when the cows were quiet, he would approach a certain animal out of the herd, creep up on one hoof after another, and snap off every fly within reach. Then he would jump for the highest ones, hitting them almost invariably, and tumbling off on his back after a successful shot. But in a moment he had scrambled back on a hoof again, and was waiting for the next fly to light within range. The most curious part of it all was that he attached himself to one cow, and would seek her out of the herd, wherever she was being milked. He never, so far as I observed, went near any of the others, and the cow after a time seemed to recognize the toad as a friend, and would often stand still after being milked as long as Kadunk remained perched on one of her hoofs. As the summer waned and green things disappeared from the garden, he deserted that also, going wider and wider afield in his night's hunting. He grew wilder, too, as all things do in the autumn days, till at last no whistle, however loud, would bring him back. Whether the owl caught him, or whether he still looks forward to the long life that nature gives to the toads, I do not know, but under the edge of the portalaca bed, as I write, is a suspicious hollow that the frost and snows have not quite concealed. I shall watch that in the spring, with more than a common interest, to know whether Kadunk the Fat One remembers his old friends. End of chapter 6, part 2 Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee